So this morning, I want to uh, look at a few verses in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes onto the scene and he goes public for the first time. Later this month, it's December by the way, later this month, we're going to focus, uh, you're going to hear a lot about baby Jesus. And that's fine. That's Matthew chapter 1 as well as Luke chapter 2. But specifically, the Gospel of Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus and some details about his birth, including in chapter 2, the visit of the Magi, as well as Joseph's dream and the family's subsequent escape to Egypt. Then in chapter 3, we're told a little bit about John the Baptist, who just happened to be Jesus' cousin and the forerunner to Jesus. Then in the first part of chapter 4, we learn of Jesus' experience in the wilderness where Satan came to tempt him. And some of those stories may be familiar to you. But then finally, it's time for Jesus to launch his public ministry. And we pick up with Jesus doing some preaching and calling his first disciples. And we're going to read some verses from Matthew 4. Before we do, let's just pray for just a second. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together today. For each person that's here, uh, God, I pray that you would anoint this time. May our hearts be open, our minds focused and free of distraction. We want to hear from your word today. We want to hear uh, from the words of Jesus. And so I pray that you would just use this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, which Isaiah said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here's what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. Why? For they were fishermen. Makes sense. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread, can you imagine, all over Syria. And people began to, uh, brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, for those of us who grew up in church, uh, you grew up going to Sunday school, you sang the songs like Fishers of Men. Should we sing it? No, no. You know all the insider stuff. If that's your story, you know that the challenge when you come to a part of the Bible that you're familiar with is to think outside what you already know. Because we tend to just go with what we think we know is happening. Because you could tell the story. I mean, you, you give you some puppets and flannel graph, you can tell the story. You're already familiar because you're like Mr. Sunday School. We get that. But here's a challenge for you. I want you to hear something new in this story today. Then there are those of us who, like, every week it's fresh. You know, it's new. It's just all new to you. 
Just about the time that you think, there, I kind of got my brain around the Bible. I got it. I've read the Bible. I get it now. You hear another story and you come across another story that you haven't heard yet. And sometimes you approach the Bible and our time together on Sundays uh, not knowing what to expect because so much of it's still new. And that's cool. So for today, and probably the next time I'm, it's my turn to teach, uh, if this is familiar to you, I just want to challenge you to set aside all your preloaded assumptions and figure out a way to come expecting something new so we can receive some new insight from something that might be familiar. And if you already know what's, what's going to be new, that you know it's going to be new to you because so much of it is new to you, your challenge may be, uh, you know, you have a completely different set of presumptions that you need to set aside. So let's just intentionally uh, approach the scripture uh, with some clarity, okay? Let's put ourselves this morning in the sandals of a Jewish fisherman, first century Israel. And you love your people, the family of Abraham, you love your land that you live on, your ancestral land. Here's, here's a map of, of Israel at the time of Jesus. And the family of Abraham received their inheritance of the land, what is modern-day Israel and Palestine and the West Bank. This is the tribal boundary lines of the family of Abraham. And so you're a Jewish fisherman, and you have a love uh, for your people. You grew up with the stories and the poetry of the Psalms and with the prophets and the stories about Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and all the stories that take place in this land where you are living and your whole imagination is filled with the stories of your past and the God of Israel who rescued his people. Now, if you're a fisherman in Israel, you only live in one place and it's up in this region up in the north. We can zoom in, Corey, thank you. Uh, there's Jerusalem in the central part of Israel and the Jordan River where John the Baptist was doing his thing, but way up in the north in the region of Naphtali and Zebulun, do you recognize those names from the story that we just read? Those are two of the sons of Jacob whose name was changed to, are you sure? Israel, right. And their descendants became known as the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. And the land that they inherited were these regions in the north around the Sea of Galilee. The thing about these northern regions, because we can go in a little tighter, is uh, that as a lifelong resident of this area, your family's been here for generations. You, you, and you know that in the time that you're living, all is not well in your world. All is not well in the world that you know. All is not well with your people. It's pretty clear why things are not well in your world because you live in essentially in a militarized zone. You live in a region that even though your ancestors have been living here for hundreds of years, you're living now under military occupation of the Roman Empire. And they've been here for about 70 years at this point. And you're reminded of their presence daily when the troops make their security rounds on the borders around the Sea of Galilee. And there are lots of ancient towns of your people up in these hills and around the water in the region of Galilee. But then there are also towns like Tiberias. These towns that just showed up out of nowhere right on the coast. These are pretty new cities. Uh, it's mostly Roman soldiers and former soldiers and lots of Greeks and Romans. And none of them care about the history of your land or your people or your God. Uh, they don't care about the God that you give your devotion to every day. When you say and you pray and you say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. They don't give a care about any of those traditions. And you think about maybe your uncle who used to farm the, a piece of land and he had to recently sell this land. He couldn't afford to keep it anymore. Why? Because the taxes keep going up. We think it's a new story. In fact, now he's a debt slave working in the olive orchards that his great-great-great-grandfather owned. Things are not good. But you hear reports, because you live in Capernaum, and there's a Jewish prophet who's from Nazareth. 
And he's making the rounds of all these towns around Galilee where, with this really electric message that has everybody talking and everybody's in anticipation about this Yeshua, Jesus, who's from Nazareth. And then he's made Capernaum his home base. Did you catch that in the story? He made Capernaum his home base and he's touring around and you, you hear that he's going to be in your synagogue this coming Sabbath. And he's going to be teaching on the Sabbath and, and maybe he's going to be healing some people because you hear that's what he does. And so you arrive at synagogue on Friday night and Jesus is there, but you didn't get there early enough because there's like 300 people there and you can only fit 50 in the room. So you're on the outside with the crowd, but somehow you're able to hear all right. So what do you hear? What do you hear Jesus talking about? This is just an average day, an average weekend. He's torn around saying his thing. What do you hear him talking about? What do you think? You can answer this question. What do you hear him talking about? What? Repentance? Okay. What? Okay. What else? You don't know? Have you read the, read the words of Jesus in the red print in your Bible? Those are things he said. Did he speak on things like love? Love your neighbor? And who else? Enemies, yeah. And um, blessed are the meek, poor, peacemakers. Right, those kinds of things. That's what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, I think it's worth asking the question. It's worth paying attention to how we answer the question. Because how we answer that question tells you a lot about how you view Jesus in the past and in the present. It might actually tell you very little about Jesus himself and what, what, about what actually Jesus actually said or did. It might tell you more about how you perceive Jesus or how you've been raised and conditioned to perceive what Jesus was about. Because many people would answer that question, well, okay, well, what's Jesus known for? He's known for... The golden rule. Let's talk about that. That's a famous one, right? The golden rule. How many of you, just to see if we're all, it's a little warm in here, the heat's about to shut off. How many of you have, are familiar with the golden rule? You put your hand if you know the golden rule. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but you are familiar with the golden rule and you've mastered it. Great, good. Okay, so the golden rule basically says what? Treat others the way you want to be treated, right? That's a good one. I think that's a good one right there. It's probably what he was teaching about at this synagogue on this day. Here's a twist for you. Did you know the golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you, that idea wasn't original with Jesus. Did you know that? I know, it's crazy. Confucius said the same thing about 500 years earlier. And then, of course, Jesus is paraphrasing from Leviticus, which was before Confucius. So, so there's that. Just think about that. It has nothing to do with anything. But maybe uh, you hear him saying something like, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Or the more, which is challenging enough. But then the more radical version of that is love your enemy and bless people who hate you. Like, not such a big thing. Can we go back to the golden rule? That one's a little easier, maybe. You might think you would hear him tell him stories because he's known for that, right? Those parables, the short stories, a story about mustard seeds or birds or sheep or something. What do we hear him talking about? If we had to summarize everything Jesus ever said or did, if you had to summarize Jesus' whole deal in one sentence, what, how would you do it? We really don't even have to try and come up with a sentence because we've already read it. Matthew's already given us the summary of everything Jesus said or did and what he was about, and some of you picked up on this. It's in verse 17, right in chapter 4. He says, repent, which means stop. Stop what you're doing. 
something is happening that's going to force you to make a decision. It's going to force you to reevaluate everything that you thought you knew about the world and about yourself and about God. And it's going to involve this radical reorganization of your priorities and your values. And it's going to radically transform your worldview. So repent. And he could have just said repent. But there's more. He says the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. In this Bible that I have uh, right here in front of me, the Gospel of Matthew takes up about 30 pages. So if you were to read through the Gospel of Matthew in my Bible, looking for the, things that, the thing that Jesus talks about most, it would become crystal clear to you because what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom. Nearly 50 times in 30 pages, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, it becomes clear that he, what he talked about all of the time, what he was about was simply the kingdom of God. Of God. That's the whole deal. His one-off teachings that have actually become the thing that he's most well-known for, it's kind of ironic because uh, loving people who hate you, you know, loving your enemy, saying a blessing on people who make life difficult for you or persecute you, not like we really know what that means, this is actually, when you think about it, just back up and come out of context. It's fairly poor advice if some other things aren't also true at the same time. Are you with me on this? Because it's actually a ridiculous way to behave unless something has happened in the world that makes this the only logical response. So, so, so what has happened that makes loving your enemy a sensible thing to do? What is happening that makes turning the other cheek a reasonable way to go through life? What's happened is that the kingdom of God is here. For all kinds of different reasons, uh, the, the kingdom of God arriving isn't the first thing that comes to mind when we think of Jesus. But this is the thing that Jesus lived and breathed. This is the thing that he talked about more than anything else. And it's the main heartbeat of his mission and his message. And everything flows from the fact that he's bringing into reality the kingdom of God. Which begs the question, what on earth is the kingdom? Like, what does it mean for a Jewish prophet or a rabbi to go around the region of Galilee 2,000 years ago saying the kingdom of God is here, or the kingdom of, of heaven? And you're going to see variations of that as you go through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to say the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, it's basically saying the same thing. But when you say heaven, in this context, Jesus is not talking about somewhere that you go. He's talking about something that's coming here. It's something that's happening here. And that is, it's going to lead everyone that comes into uh, have an encounter with Jesus to stop and look and listen. So what does it mean? What on earth does that mean? Because if you're this Jewish fisherman in ancient Israel, all kinds of things are firing in your mind right now when you hear Jesus say something like this because you grew up with the poetry of the Psalms and the stories of the Hebrew Scripture and the prophets. And this phrase is extremely meaningful for you. It has everything to do with your life and you're reminded of that every day that you're out and about and you see these Romans marching around the lake and then you visit your uncle who went back, went into slavery on essentially his own land. So to ask what the kingdom of God is, or what the kingdom of God is about, requires us to kind of pick ourselves up out of the storyline of Jesus into the bigger overarching biblical drama, the storyline of the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament up to this point. So we're looking at the whole Bible. So here's what we're going to do. 
I'm going to be your tour guide for a few minutes, and we're going to do a quick photo op at three key moments in the storyline of the Hebrew scriptures, and then we're going to come back and read uh, a little more from Matthew 4. And man, this is amazing. This is going to be so helpful for you, because we're coming into a time of year when uh, you're going to have to go to some office parties, and you're going to have to spend some time with some family members that you have nothing in common with, you only see them a couple times a year, and you're going to have to find something to talk about. So today I want to help you with that, because with some conversation starters, because everyone loves to have conversations about Bible trivia. So I think you just start, break the ice with this, and uh, it'll be great, and you'll just, it's a great way to deal with those awkward party settings. So anyway, if you're reading through the story of the New Testament, and for most people who start reading the Bible, they start with the New Testament, uh, especially if they're doing it at the encouragement of other Christians, you know, church people. So for the most part, their introduction to intentional Bible reading is... uh, the New Testament, and it's usually the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew. And John mentions the kingdom of God a few times, but Matthew mentions it over 50 times. And uh, in context, it's really the entire Gospel of Matthew. So if this is where you're starting, you've got to be wondering, what does this mean? What's the frame of reference? What's the context for this, all this talk about kingdom? What does Jesus mean by kingdom of God? What's the context for that? So where would you say... This concept of kingdom, the concept of ruling or reigning, appears for the very first time in the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess at this? Where does it show up for the very first time? Man, there's a lot of whispering. I hear some S sounds. And um, what book of the Bible do you think? Let's just say a book of the Bible. Say a book of the Bible, one that you know, and you can see. Yeah, just be confident about it. And yeah, I don't care which book you say, just say a book of, there you go, great. Okay, so you're right, Genesis. Good job, everybody. Uh, The very first book of the Bible, uh, so you're tracking with me, it's great, it's always helpful to have some Bible nerds in the room. Does anyone know what chapter in Genesis exactly where we're introduced to this idea of kingdom? Anybody want to venture a guess? What chapter in Genesis? It's in chapter one. This is the first stop on our tour. In the very first story, the very first story in the Bible, depicts God as an artist, as a creative, wise being who's powerful enough to breathe and speak a world of order and beauty into existence out of the dark, chaotic void that the story begins with. And what God wants to do fundamentally through his act of creation is to share. Do you ever think about it that way? God orders this incredible world full of so much potential But then what God does with it is something surprising because he's clearly the author, the king of the whole thing. But what he wants to do is share ownership of this incredibly beautiful, complex world that he's designed. Here's where I take this from in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created, this is kind of the summary. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's something unique about the human role in the story of our world. And as humans, we have this responsibility to steward or to oversee the world on God's behalf. And when we do that, we represent God to the creation. So the idea of ruling is kind of an odd way to talk about that, but that's the language of kings and queens. This is kingdom language. And as human beings, we don't just inhabit this world of awesome potential and resources. We actually remake it everywhere we go. Have you noticed that? It's a very unique capacity of the human species 
that comes with great responsibility and a divine calling. And here's the thing, let me just explain this in terms that I think most of us can identify with. If you're a manager in your workplace, or you've ever been a manager in your workplace, <clears throat> some level, maybe a department manager or a shift manager, or something like that, you would never say, I rule this place. <laughs> having a, we're having a department meeting today, I just want to remind you, I rule you. You might think that you do, I would not recommend you saying that out loud. Uh, you're your coworkers might think that you think you do, but you don't actually because you're a manager. You're not the owner. There's, something, there's somebody else who actually owns it. You rule it on their behalf. So that's kind of the storyline right here. So the story of the Bible begins, and it's a story about kingdoms. It's a story about God as the king, but then he installs humans as these rulers who will rule the world on God's behalf will take all of its raw potential and take the world in directions it wouldn't go otherwise. It's, and that calling is going to require us to make decisions, really, really significant decisions about what is good, what is not good, about good and evil. And so we're, as humans, we're presented with this choice. Are human beings going to allow God to be the one who defines good and evil? Or are humans going to seize the opportunity, seize autonomy, define the knowledge of good and evil on their own terms, define good and evil in a way that we think is best for us. Of course, we know what happened, right? Humans started an alternate kingdom where they've seized autonomy. It's like a hostile takeover. This is the basic plot conflict of the Bible. So Jesus has a term for this age of the human corrupt kingdom. He just calls it this age, the age of this world. Paul calls it the age of sin and death. It's a realm after the fall, after the hostile takeover. So the whole plot of the Old Testament is what is God going to do about this hostile takeover? And what he does is he sets in motion a plan to reassert his kingdom, to reassert his rule over the kingdoms of the world. And the first way that God does this in the, the biblical story is he singles out one family. And he's going to form them as a new people in like an alternate kingdom, a contrast community, and reveal to them and through them what it means to truly become human in a way that doesn't define good and evil on our terms, but sees the world according to God's wisdom and God's holiness. So that's where God decides to start. So who is the patriarch of this family that God has chosen? Want to guess? Abraham, right. Abraham and Sarah. And, and, and they're to train their family in the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness in this alternate kingdom. And God begins to form his family. But then the, here's what happens. The family gets really big. This is second photo op, by the way, on our tour of the Old Testament. The family grows, and through a series of events, they end up in slavery to one of the biggest, baddest kingdoms this world had ever seen. What's the kingdom? Egypt, right. And who's the king? Pharaoh, what's his name? Right. And remember, Pharaoh is larger than life in this story. He represents everything that's wrong with the collective human kingdom. So he's power hungry, and he's a murderous king. He's redefining good and evil on his terms to the extent that killing babies in the name of building more whatever is good instead of evil. So in the process, he's grinding the family of Abraham into the dust through slavery. And so what does God do? God eventually reasserts his kingdom and he raises up a deliverer, Moses, and he confronts Pharaoh and he says, you can't do this. You need to humble yourself. You need to set these people free. And Pharaoh's like, I don't even, I don't even know who you are. I don't know this God of Israel. Why should I care? I call the shots around here. And the story gets really, really intense. And by the end, 
Pharaoh ends up on a road of no return. He's so intoxicated by his own power in his effort to win. And you probably know the story. The Egyptian army arrives at the banks of the Red Sea to discover that the Israelites are somehow crossing over uh, on this path through the sea. So Pharaoh's like, well, let's go, guys. And he orders his army to pursue them. God closes the waters over them. The entire Egyptian army dies, possibly including Pharaoh himself. So now the slaves, the Israelites, are liberated and freed. And we're at a moment in the story of the Old Testament. This is where, in the storyline of Scripture, that God is called a king for the first time. Where God is depicted as a ruling king. At this moment in the story, after the Israelite slaves have gained their freedom, they've passed through the sea on dry land, the pursuing army has been defeated, they sing the first worship song of the Bible. And in Jewish tradition, it's known as the Song of the Sea. Here are the opening lines. This is in Exodus 15. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. It says, Sing to the Lord because he's worthy of great honor. He's thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord gives me strength and makes me sing. He saved me. He's my God and I'll praise him. He's the God of my ancestors. I'll honor him. And then the last line of verse 18 says, The Lord will be king forever. The king of this world has reasserted his reign by forming an alternate kingdom and confronting evil and destructive effects on people and liberating these people and inviting them to live under his reign and his rule. That's what it looks like when God asserts his kingdom. So what does it mean then? The kingdom of God has come near when Jesus says that. What's that mean? It means the king is forming a new people and he's liberating them from the kingdoms of this world because when God is king, people are rescued. So if you're this Jewish fisherman that we started with a few minutes ago, you've grown up hearing and reciting and living out these poems and these stories, and they're all leading somewhere. Last stop on the tour. And God invites the Israelites to come to a mountain where they enter a covenant relationship with God. And the terms of the covenant, this relationship, are very clear. They start with ten terms. They're the famous ones. We even have a name for them, right? We call them the ten commandments, right? And that's where we stop for some reason, because if you just keep reading, depending on how you count them, there are either 602 or 603 more. And we call that the law of Moses. We aren't experts on that. We don't have that plastered on a wall somewhere. We just kind of go with the 10. But anyway, that's convenient for us. Through these terms, God is trying to uh, make very clear in terms they would understand what it means for this ancient Israelite tribal farming community to live in an alternate kingdom in ancient Near Eastern world. That's what all these ancient laws in the Jewish scripture of the Old Testament are designed to do for Israel. And if you're freaked out by what you read in there, understand, we have to understand the context to get it. If they do this, if they keep this covenant, they'll be faithful to the covenant. God says they'll be like a city on a hill. He said that through the prophet Isaiah. So how did Israel do with this, by the way? They failed miserably, right? Over and over again. And essentially, the people that got rescued out from under Pharaoh's slavery, they kind of become like Pharaoh. The kings of Israel become lesser versions of Pharaoh, little wannabe mini Pharaohs. And they drive the family that God has formed right into the ground, and they're taken off eventually into exile in Babylon. And that's where the story of the Old Testament comes to its climax. Which begs the question, what is God going to do now? The people that he rescued to form the new people, to invite them to live in his kingdom, they don't want to live under his reign anymore. So how is God going to assert his reign over these rebellious people? This is why the Old Testament, by the way, is so long and so complicated. So you end with the hope of Israel's prophets that one day God is going to come and fix this. 
And they're speaking into a time of captivity and exile. And he's going to come to bring his kingdom. And he's going to reassert his rule over Israel and over all the nations. So the prophet Isaiah is one of these prophets. And he writes this poem. It's a poem that tells a story. It tells a story of a night watchman on the walls of the city. And the city's been defeated by its enemies. And we're looking for any sign of good news. Just a little bit of hope. So the watchman sees a messenger come running over the hills. And here's how the poem begins in Isaiah 52. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem, your God reigns. Listen, he says, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That's the hope that they lived with. You're that, that first century Jewish fisherman, that's the hope you live with. You've grown up with this. And the moment you come to this crowded synagogue in Galilee and all these people have gathered around this person, all this lights up. All this context that you've grown up with is right there. And you hear Jesus start off talking about the kingdom of God is here. Oh, jump ahead in the story because we can do that because we're living on this side of the story. Jesus didn't get crucified for telling people to love each other. He didn't get crucified for telling people to turn the other cheek. He didn't get crucified for telling people to treat others the way you want to be treated. Can you believe he said that? We need to kill this guy. No, Jesus wasn't publicly executed by the Romans for being a moral teacher, which is how our culture has kind of insists on reducing Jesus to simply being an important, you know, moral teacher in the history of religions. But that is not how Jesus presented himself or talked about himself. He presented himself as being the one who is reasserting God's rule over the nations, and his audience heard it as over the nation of Israel. That's what gets Jesus crucified for claiming to be king of his people, king of the nations. And by the way, it is exactly what Jesus is doing. And it's loaded politically, it's loaded sociologically, it's loaded religiously, it's loaded in every way you can imagine in his culture. So if the story of the kingdom of God is about a king, if the first thing a king does is form a people, what does Jesus do next? He takes a walk. He takes a walk around the lake and he's going to start forming a people. So does he go to Jerusalem? And start with like the city leaders and the chief priests and the educated people and all that? Is that how he brings in his kingdom? No, he just takes a walk around the lake and he runs into some fishermen. And how does he present himself to them? He walks up to them and he says, hey, you guys, yeah, you, follow me. I'm bringing the kingdom of God, so follow me. And what he does, what does it, what does it mean for, uh, for them to follow this before now unknown, self-proclaimed king and become part of his new people. It's the most radical reorientation of their lives. Look at the first two. <laughs> they just leave. No questions asked. You're like, sure, why not? And Jesus is like, I'm going to send you to fish for people. Look at the second pair. This is back in Matthew 4, verse 21. Uh, who, are, who are they with in the boat? They're with their dad, right? This is a family business. Who knows how many generations this has been what their family did. And King Jesus waltzes on to the scene and says, follow me. And he forces them to make this decision. 
There's something in the moment that compels them to have a radical reorganization of all of their priorities and everything they thought they knew about their identity and the story that they were living in and, the, and their values and what's most important in their lives. All of that gets challenged by Jesus and he summons them. So let's pause because we've completed our tour. We stopped off in the Garden of Eden. We stopped with Abraham and his family that became the nation of Israel. And we stopped with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai when they entered into a covenant relationship with God. So now we've come to the last movement here. What does it actually mean to live under this king's reign? This is the whole, this is the whole thing right here. This is all of it. The kingdom that Jesus came announcing and the kingdom that he embodied in this radical reorganization of our value system is so unlike any other human organization or institution in the history of the human race. It just doesn't have any categories whatsoever. Because what does it look like when Jesus ushers in his kingdom? That's what the story's about. That's what so much of the Gospel of Matthew is about. So what's it look like? Well, Matthew and the other Gospel writers tell us that Jesus goes around teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. So I wonder where in the Gospel of Matthew I could find just a few chapters of Jesus' teaching about what it means to live under his reign in the kingdom of God. Any idea where I might find that? Oh, maybe the next chapter in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think Jesus had graphics and all that and branded Sermon on the Mount, trademark, but we call it Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to live under the reign of this king? Jesus tells us what it looks like. And so if you have a Bible that treats the words of Jesus in red, you're going to notice lots of red after this paragraph right here. And there's a reason why. Because everything Jesus is going to say about this kingdom is going to be totally uh, counterintuitive to his listeners and to us. And it's just this complete upending of our views of power and of status and of value and identity and significance. Jesus had this effect on people. People would encounter him and they would find their deepest motives and their deepest fears and their deepest values exposed before him. No one walked away from Jesus unchanged and unaffected because an encounter with Jesus compels every single one of us to deal with our core issues, to deal with the darkest parts of our character. Because Jesus is convinced that renewal of the human condition and the healing of the human race has to do with facing the dark, the dark evil that we've given into, the lies that we've bought into about what's most important and our identity and what it means to be significant in the world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to open up all of that. And he isn't simply asking us to change the way we act. Oh, listen. He isn't calling us to to some behavior modification. He's not calling us to address some of the externals. So just kind of work harder at it, make it happen, get some accountability. No, what's happening is he's inviting us to bring all of this to him, to bring all the darkest parts of our character, the most most enslaving behaviors, the most judgmental part of us, the addictions, the dark places, the lies we've believed, the past that we're ashamed of and lived into, to bring all of that to Jesus. And to allow his mercy, I hope you get this, and allow his love and allow his wisdom to redefine who we are. To change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and the way that we engage with people around us. When we live under his reign, keenly aware of life in the kingdom of God,
He won't allow any part of our lives to escape the gravity of his love and his mercy and his grace and his wisdom. Nobody walks away from an encounter with Jesus unchanged. This is what it means to do life in the kingdom of God. These stories and these teachings in the Gospels aren't there and preserved for us just to tell us something interesting that happened 2,000 years ago. These stories are intended to bring us into a living encounter with the same Jesus who called those fishermen by the lake. And in the same way that he kind of just strolled into their lives and just summoned them to, to join him, in the same way he's here in our midst. We believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and he's alive and he's real and he's still calling to people through his Holy Spirit and still inviting people right now to live under his reign. And so we have a choice. We have a choice every single day. We're all born with certain temperaments and dispositions, and that's nature. And then we're all raised with a certain set of habits, that's nurture, a certain view of what it means to be human, what am I going to pursue in life, what gives my life significance. And Jesus is going to bring all of that to the table and radically reorganize it all around his call to us to live under his reign and to live out the values of his kingdom. So, I don't know exactly what this means for you, but you probably know the decision that's before you. You know the relationship that is unreconciled, just hanging there in your life unresolved. You know the issue with that habit or that destructive behavior or the way you handle your money or that emotional unhealth, your anger, your jealousy, that thing, your need to control. And maybe for you, all of that's just become normal. To you, it's a completely normal way to be human. It's just the way I am. I just want to tell you in the kingdom of Jesus, he's going to tell you with love and firmness, but he's going to tell you when you're destroying yourself. He's going to tell you when you're hurting the people around you. He's going to tell you when you're living in bondage to that behavior, to that unresolved thing, that emotional unhealth. He will speak that into your life. We just need to be in a position to hear his voice. So if you're going to say yes and follow him, I'll tell you exactly where he's going to take you. He's going to lead you to life in his kingdom. And if we're ever going to experience the life as God intended it, we need to be liberated and we need to come under the loving, grace-filled reign of King Jesus. And yes, we have a responsibility to the kingdom of God. If we're going to follow Jesus into life in his kingdom, he's called us to approach life in a completely new and radical, and counterintuitive and countercultural way. We're going to talk about that probably in a couple weeks. But for today, I just want to invite you to say yes. To say yes to the call of Jesus. And you're like, oh, I already said yes. I've been a Christian like forever. Good, but let me ask you this. As an example, what matrix describes your life more accurately? The Ten Commandments that we talked about a few minutes ago or the values of the kingdom that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? So let's give some serious consideration to that. I encourage you to go ahead and read the next three chapters over the next couple of weeks, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And let King Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, speak to you to speak love and grace and truth into you. And let's submit to his loving rule all over again. Can we pray together?